0: Well, you all may take your seats. On behalf of New Life Church, we want to say happy Mother's Day. New Life kids, you're not dismissed just yet, guys. Hit the brakes. Pump the brakes. So close, but yet so far away. We're going to let you guys be dismissed here in just a moment. For moms, we got a little something for you. Take a look at this video. Mom's gonna love this. <laughs> yeah, and you know what?
1: She deserves it. She's a great mom. Okay, what are we missing? We got the eggs, the juice, the muffins, got the bacon, cereal, oatmeal.
0: Dad, nobody likes oatmeal.
1: Hey, I know we got chocolates for your mom, but there was something else that she wanted for Mother's Day. What was it?
0: Was it a new Bible? Look how worn out that thing is. Dad, gotta start watching out for these things.
1: I bet it was a spa day.
0: bet it was a new car.
1: Uh, definitely not a new car.
0: She's basically my personal Uber driver. We could both use the upgrade.
1: <laughs> no. Was it those fuzzy socks?
0: Dad, you get that for her every holiday. She has like a thousand of them.
1: Is it one of those candles that she puts in our bedroom? Hold on, why does she only put that on my side? What was it she wanted for Mother's Day? Oh.
0: Dad! Remember what mom points for Mother's Day?
1: What's that, buddy? The lady <laughs> Happy Mother's Day! Mother's Day! <laughs> we clearly owe you brunch after church. <laughs> What you owe me is a nap. Yes. Yes, we do.
0: Is that right? Just to sleep in, right? Just one day. Just one day. Well, happy Mother's Day, New Life Church. We're so thankful that you guys are here with us today. Uh, I'll turn it over to you, babe.
1: Okay. Good morning, everybody. Happy Mother's Day. The hardest job in the world. But the most rewarding, dads, will say that dads is the hardest job on Father's Day, but today it's Mom's Day. So we're going to give honor where honor is due. We have a little photo station back there, so we hope you uh, take a picture before you leave today. And then we put together some little treat bags that you can grab during transition or on your way out. All the ladies take one of those and enjoy it today. But every year we do something here at New Life Church. We've been doing it for a while where we honor a mother of the year. And um, today, I'm not really sure how we've never honored this mother before, but somehow we haven't done that yet. And so today, I would like to honor somebody who from the moment I walked in this church, it wasn't in this building, but it was on North Parkway, has been um, serving with me and serving the children of this house for what's almost 20 years now. Tammy Bishop, would you come up here, please, this morning? Tammy Bishop, we honor you as our Mother of the Year. (laughs) This certificate that we forgot to sign, (laughs) we'll do it later, says New Life Church, Mother of the Year, presented to Tammy Bishop, This award is presented in recognition of all the amazing things that make her so special, her strength, kindness, and generosity, her care and support for her family, and her heart to see those around her know and experience the love of Christ. And nothing could be more true about you, my friend, and so we honor you today. And these lovely fern and ivy pots are for your beautiful front porch and hope you get a lot of time to sit on that front porch today and enjoy your beautiful children. I love you. love you.
0: Love you, Tammy. Let's give it up for all of our moms at New Life Church. Thankful for each one. All right, New Life kids, you may exit the sanctuary. If you would join one of our moms at the back, Miss Amy Levins, New Life Kids leader for today, all the way up to grade six. And if you have a young one less than kindergarten, we do have preschool nursery available as well. Make yourself available to those services today. All right, well, listen, as Haley mentioned, we have uh, some gift bags and treat bags, um, so don't forget to get those. Moms on your way out there at the back at the Guest and Connect area. And then please take about a minute, if you can, with your with your family, if you'd like to. Or if you just want to do a solo picture, we get that too. If you just want to be like, hey, look at me, rock today, I'm a mom, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll want you to have your own picture as well. So take advantage of that uh, with you today. Listen, let me invite you to open up your Bibles to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, and then also going to turn to Revelation chapter 1. Matthew 24 and Revelation chapter 1. <clears throat> We had been in Second Timothy, three as kind of the, the foundational uh, text for this series that we're in um, on eschatology that we call "remain faithful." And um, one of the things that, that I want to point out as we as we get into today's text is uh, Paul writing that letter to Timothy. He starts it out in with this for the first part of that letter, saying, "Hey, I, I, I when I pray for you, I'm reminded of your strong faith." Timothy, that strong faith that you have that first was in your grandmother, and then it was also in your mother, and has been passed on to you, and uh, I am thankful, he says, uh, as I remember that faith that you have from two previous generations passed on to you, and um, you know, as we, as we struggle through life at times and as we consider the complexities and the complications of, of life, especially in what's related to as the last days, um, there's something that, that we all have to continue to keep on the forefront. And that is, what what are we passing on to the next generation? Because Timothy certainly was in a position to uh, be able to stand strong and remain faithful to Jesus because of that two-generational uh, faith that was passed on to Him. Two generations deep. The Bible talks about if we're able to get this faith passed on to three generations, then it creates a whole another opportunity to get it to a thousand generations. And friends, that's why generational faith is so vital. Not that we ride the coattails of those before us, but we accept the faith and wear it up for our own from generation to generation. And so that is one of the things that helped Timothy, as Paul reminded him, that in the last days it will be very difficult and very challenging, but he's confident when he writes that to Timothy and to the churches that they can remain faithful because they have faith, faith that's deep, faith that's strong, faith that's real. Even when the struggles are real, faith overrides and faith empowers and allows a uh, uh, each one of us to rise up from whatever life has has dealt us and enables us to carry on and keep our faith and keep our focus on what is most important, and that is Jesus Christ, which is why we're here. We get to be here today because there was some praying moms, praying grandmothers, spiritual moms, spiritual family members that that pioneered the way, that paved the way, that created a way for all of us to have this experience, the experience that Paul talks about, the love of Christ that is so rich, that is so deep, that is so high, that is so wide. He said you can't exhaust the love of Christ. And that is what changes our lives, is the, is the compelling love of Jesus. And so Jesus here in Matthew chapter 24 He's on this kind of this long conversation, this private conversation, if you will, with his disciples. And he's filling them in because he, they ask him a question, when will the end happen? And how will it all look like? What will it all look like? And he begins to go in and gives all of these descriptions and these signs about the end times and how it all will come together. And, and it kind of, in the middle of this, uh, the pinnacle of this conversation and this, um, Discourse that he's having with his disciples, he says, but listen, nobody knows when I will return. I don't even know. He says, the angels don't know. Only the, only the Father in heaven knows. And then he, he adds this. Let's look at this in Matthew 24, verse 42. It says, so you too must keep watch. Can you say keep watch? watch. Keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. Everyone say, be ready. You must be ready all the time, all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Will you pray with me over this word today? Lord, we draw near to you, thanking you, celebrating the people in our life that make our faith rich and make it strong and make it real so that we can grab a hold of it and run forward in this marathon of life. Today, as we consider this text and your word, we ask that you would speak to us. Open our eyes and our ears, Lord, to see and to hear and our hearts to receive it in an understanding way so that our lives can be built up and, and have a greater, stronger foundation for which to build. And Lord, we honor you and we thank you that you would be glorified in your word, that you would fill my heart and my mouth, O oh Lord, with what you want to be said. And it would be honoring to you and helpful to your people on this day in Jesus' name. Everyone can say amen. So we're talking about uncertain times. Life has a lot of uncertainties, and we've been looking at some things that Scripture points us to that are certain that we can hold on to. We've talked about holding on to and remaining faithful to the truth, the Word of God, because it tells us it will never fade away. We've, been, we've also been talking about remaining faithful to Jesus Because he will return. He actually is in the process of returning. He has been ever since he was ascended into the into heaven at the right hand of the throne of God. And he's been waiting for his opportunity to be sent and reclaim his church, his bride, his people. And so those are some things that we've been looking at that are certain. In an uncertain time, in an uncertain place, in an uncertain world, the Bible gives us some certain things that you and I can. Latch onto, hold onto, and anchor our souls onto that can help keep us steady in the midst of life's chaos. Are you thankful for that? God's word is an anchor. God's word is it, it, it saves us. God's word has so much in it to offer us and to help us understand how we can navigate our life in an uncertain time. Corey Ten Boom certainly knows what it's like to or knew what it was like to be in an uncertain place of life. The author of the hiding place, she said this. If you look at the world, you'll be depressed. If you look inside, you'll be distressed. If you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. Looking at Christ in the midst of life, in the big picture of life, that's what keeps our souls calm. That's what keeps our lives anchored. It's what keeps our faith afloat, if you will. That's what keeps everything in perspective. The world can get fuzzy. The world can get chaotic. There can be a lot of uncertainty in life and it certainly has happened and it continues to happen. There'll be a lot of questions you and I have about why this? Why is this happening? Why am I going through this? Why am I experiencing this? Why is this going on all around? All of that is real. God knows it. But he's given us some things that you and I can hold on to to help keep us strong and to help keep us in a place to be able to remain faithful to Jesus. So here in Matthew 24... Jesus tells him, hey, there are two, basically two positions to live life from as you approach your life and move forward. That is to live watchful and to live ready. To live watchful and to live ready. Paul talked about this to the Thessalonians. He wrote something similar. Peter wrote something similar to be watchful, to be ready, to be at a place of life because you just never know. Jesus goes on in the, in, in the rest of this time in, in chapter 25 and he talks about and he gives two parables. He gives a parable of the ten bridesmaids and he gives a parable of three servants. The parable of the ten bridesmaids is a follow-up to being watchful, to living watchful. You've got the bridegroom who is Jesus in this parable. You've got the bridesmaids who represent the church. You've And, and, and you, there were five foolish and five wise at that time in this story. And it was culturally relevant that there would be no less than ten witnesses at that time who would attend and watch a sacred event. And so there's ten of these bridesmaids, representing many, and, and to give a testament to what is to come. And here they were with their lamps filled with oil. And then what they were doing was going out to set watch for the coming of the bridegroom. They would, When the bridegroom would come, culturally, they would take their lamps and they would light the path Kind of like God's word, they would light the path leading into the house, leading into the place of celebration to welcome in the bride, or excuse me, to welcome in the bridegroom, to welcome in the one who was coming back. And, and that's what this parable is telling that these bridesmaids, the church, is at a place of life waiting for the return of the bridegroom, waiting for the return of Christ. And we are called to have our lamps always filled with oil so that the light will never go out. The light is supposed to always shine. And there were five wise and five foolish. Basically, five of them took enough oil for however much of time. Five of them did not take enough oil. So, the lesson, the simple lesson that we can learn from that is one, they all anticipated the return of Christ, the return of the bridegroom. They were all in a place of waiting, but they were not all able to keep watch with their light on. And so, the lesson is. That we must keep our life always filled with oil. What is that? To always have our life filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with what God has to offer us and who he is to us. And so then he goes on, he tells another parable, the parable of the three servants. And you've got in this story, you've got the master who represents Jesus. You've got the servants who represent the church. And he gives silver, bags of silver to these three each according to their ability, each according to their, um, uh, the potential that they were gifted with. And he gives one five bags, two, another two bags, and another one bag of silver. And, he, and then he goes away on a long trip. And then he wants to see when he comes back, what did you do with what I gave you? And so Jesus has gone away and he's coming back. He's given us life. He's given us skill. He's given us talent. He's given us potential in our life. He's given us time. What do we do with this one life that we have to live? And so the master comes back to check in and say, and to see, what did you do with what I gave you? The one with five bags invested his life, gained five more. The one with two, the same thing. The one with none did absolutely nothing with it, dug a hole and hid it in the ground. He wasted and squandered his life. The one with five who gained five more. The one with two who gained two more. The master told him, well done, my good and faithful servants. You may enter into the joy of your master. The lesson learned is to live your life, the one life you have, for the purpose of Jesus Christ. Live it with all you've got. The Bible calls us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. To love the Lord with everything within us, every fiber of our being. Now, do we do that every single day? I don't do that every single day. I think about my own selfish wants. I think about things that I would like to do. I think about things that I want. I think about what would be self-pleasing to me. What, how can I make this day Favor my life today. How can I, you know, do this, go this way, go that way, make this decision? And there are times and there are moments in my life, in, in all of our lives where we don't always truly live up to that. But what is he saying? Make that the trajectory of your life. Make that the direction of your life. That no matter what, the Bible tells us teaches us that though a righteous person may fall seven times, he shall always get up again. In other words, God's grace empowers you and I to always each day get up and live the life we have for that day and not try to keep worry about what tomorrow will bring, as Jesus taught in the in the in the on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, think about this day and live this day. Seek first today the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you, but live your life with the potential and the time that you have for the sole purpose to glorify and honor Jesus and make his name known and so that he will be seen and evident in your life to everyone around you as much as possible doesn't mean we live perfect. Paul said that himself in, late in his life in Philippians 3. He goes, I haven't arrived. I, haven't be, I, I am not perfected. I haven't done everything perfect. But here's one thing I do. I forget what lies behind, and I press on to what lies ahead. And I'm going to lay hold of that prize. Trust me, he said, I'm going to get a hold of what Jesus has waiting for me because I am not looking backwards. I am looking forwards. I'm making my life the trajectory of it, to live for the purpose of the Lord. And so Jesus is saying, gives these parables, live watchful, live ready, always live watchful, always live ready. Make the decision every single day to live watchful and to live ready because you just don't know the hour that the Lord will return. And then you have the last book of the Bible. Look at it in Revelation chapter 1. So you've got John the Apostle, who's a pastor, he's a bishop, he's an overseer of churches. He's in his mid-80s when he writes this, around AD 95-96. John is is on the prison island of Patmos, just off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And he's on that island because he would not worship Caesar. He would not give his allegiance to Caesar. And he's on that island because he remained faithful to Jesus. Friends, I want you to understand this in, just in trying to approach life moving forward. And a lot of us get it. But not everything that's bad that happens to us is because we did something wrong. It's because we do what's right. And the reason it works that way is because the devil cannot stand the creation of God. And you get into Revelation 12 and 13. We talked a little bit about this last week. The devil knows his time is short to wreak havoc on God's people. So he's doing anything and everything he can to disrupt the plan and purpose of Jesus from happening in a person's life. And so every, not everything that's bad in our life is because you and I did something bad or did something wrong. It's because we're staying the course. Now, are there consequences for bad actions? Yes. Are there issues that can arise because we make stupid decisions? You betcha it happens. That's part of life. But the majority majority of the time, we have our face set like Flint and we're focused on Christ. You and I will go through things. You and I will deal with great pressure. You and I will deal with great affliction in life because the devil does not like anybody pursuing a life in Jesus. Especially to keep the faith like Paul talked about all the way to the finish line, all the way from until it's time to go home with the Lord or until he returns, especially the longevity of faith. So he will try anything he can to disrupt that. John was an example of that. John was remaining faithful to Jesus, he was exiled to the island of Patmos, the prison island. Other prisoners were there. And this book opens up, 22 chapters, this book opens up with John saying he was worshiping the Lord. It was the Lord's day and he was in the spirit worshiping God in a prison, on a prison island, worshiping the Lord. And he said he heard this voice behind him that sounded like a blast of a trumpet. So naturally, what does John do? Turns around to see what this sound is. Look at it in verse 12. He says, When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like the flames of fire. His feet were polished bronze, refined in a furnace and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. So John turns around to see what this massive, loud voice was. It is the voice of the risen Savior, Jesus. It's the voice of the Son of God. And we've come to find out later at the end of this chapter, the seven gold lampstands that he sees are the seven churches that he's charged to write us, a letter to each one of these churches. John is an overseer of churches, so it's natural for him to be in communication with his elders and all of the churches that he oversaw. And the Lord spoke to him and says, Write everything you see. And write it and send it to these seven churches. So then boom, it just begins to unfold. John begins to see all these wild, crazy, weird images, not because he was, you know, high on anything, just because that was the Lord giving him images of what is to come. In fact, it opens up in Revelation 1 earlier and he says, Whatever you see, write it down, because this is what you need to show the churches of what is to come. All right. So there's some natural order of things that were taking place at the time of John and in his, in his uh, exile on the prison island, but then it was also relatable to the future. Relatable to then, but we're also relatable to the future. And just like today, relatable to us today in the book of Revelation, but also relatable to our future on what is to come. All right. So he begins to see all these images, and he has to write all of these things down, Can you imagine that, being just given all these flash images? And these images that he receives are not necessarily in chronological order. They're like scenes from a play, like from a script, and he sees them. Because each description is like, I saw this, then I saw that, then I saw this, then I heard this, then I heard that. And so it necessarily doesn't happen in chronological order per se as it's written, but it's written based on how he saw it. All right, and he begins to see these things, and there's seven churches, five churches. As he writes these le- these these letters to these churches, five of the churches that said the Lord had a complaint against them, two churches it did not. The five churches they had a complaint against. They was about this. One had lost their first love. They had left their first love for the Lord. Another church had compromised. Another church was lukewarm. Another church had fallen asleep. And all of these things were going on that the Lord saw about them. But he gave each of them a charge and an opportunity. He said, but if you will turn around, if you will repent and come to me, then I'll restore back to you. You see, that's the thing that God gives every one of us an opportunity to do is to repent because repentance leads to restoration. All right, But then he had, the out of the seven churches, there were also two churches that he did not have a complaint on. The church of Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia. You can read about that here in, in Revelation 2 and also in Revelation chapter 3. But like, I'm going to look at them today as, as we look at this in these next few minutes. As the, Each one of these churches, the church at Smyrna was a picture of a church and a people who were living watchful. The church of Philadelphia, I look at it as a church and a people who were living ready based on what Jesus said in Matthew 24. You must live watchful. You must also live ready. And I think the church and a people who desire and make themselves live in a place and a position from living watchful and living ready, there's not a lot of complaint that the Lord has against that. But he gives this this description with the church of Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2. I encourage you, you can go back and read it. But he opens up and he tells John, I am the first and the last. I am the dead and I I'm am I'm a living one again. And he says, look, I, I see your pressure. I know the pressure you're under. That, that comes from the same context that Jesus talked about in, Revel, in, in Matthew 24 where he says the end times will have great tribulation or great pressure upon it. And Jesus is telling the church at Smyrna, I am the first and the last, and I see and I know your pressure. Why is that so important to be reminded of, first and last? It reminds the church then, it reminds the church today, you and I, that Jesus is the first and last. He bookends our life. He boundaries our life. He holds our life. He's the beginning and is the end. He says, I am the alpha, I am the mega, I am the first, I am the last, I am the beginning and the end. All that, He bookends our life. What can that bring to us in a life that's filled with chaos and confusion and complexities and complications and uncertainties that no matter what, Jesus has the first word, Jesus has the last word, Jesus has the middle of my life. Jesus has, from the time I'm born to the time I die, He can hold my life together and keep it Together, so long as I acknowledge him as my Lord. He's the first and he's the last. And guess what? Jesus doesn't expect us to figure it all out. If we could figure it all out, we would not need the first and the last. We would not need the Alpha and the Omega. We would not need the beginning and the end. If we could figure life out and do it all on our own and make all the right decisions and and have the perfect wisdom as heaven, then guess what? We would not need Jesus. But we can't. We have not. That's why we need Him to be first and to be last in our life. That's why we acknowledge Him when we rise and we thank Him when we fall down at night and go to sleep. And that's why we take time in our day, many times in our day, to express our heart, our love, our devotion to Him. Because He's first, He's last, and He's in between. And He tells the church at Smyrna, I see your pressure. I know your pressure. I see that you are trying to continue to keep watch for me in the midst of life's tribulations. I see that. But here's what He also goes on to tell them. Don't be afraid. In your hour of darkness. Anybody ever have an hour of darkness in your life? Anybody go through some unknowns? Anybody travel through some pitfalls? Anybody ever get caught up and hung up in life sometimes and you're just, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to make it through this. I'm feeling the weight. I'm feeling the heaviness. I'm feeling the anxiety. I'm feeling the worry. am, Am I not talking to anybody real today? Pinch yourself and make sure you're awake. I know there are people in this church today who experience real life tribulation. And pressure is real, and it can only get worse sometimes. But here's the deal. Jesus telling them and telling us today, don't be afraid of the pressure you're in because I'm aware of it. I see it, and I understand where it comes from. That pressure that you feel, it's like a battle. The battle happens because there's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness colliding. But listen, the kingdom of God will never break apart and never bow to the kingdom of darkness. It will always override it and conquer it. In fact, it already has. It already has. We're just living it out right now. We're just living it out right now. But the great news about the end of this story, the end of this book, is Jesus wins. Jesus, in fact, he's already won. You and I are just living it out, and we're going to get to experience the greatest triumph of victory this world has never seen before. And that is Jesus coming back, and the whole world will know that, man, that book was for real. That Christian was not lying. That joker told the truth. I know there might have been some questions here and there, but man, they, that was for real. Can you imagine you're going to be standing, if he comes back when you're alive, and you're standing and talking to a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, or whoever it is, wherever you might be, and Jesus comes back, and they don't believe, but you believe, they're going to be left like, that was for real. I'm not making this, this is all in here. I know we probably don't think that's not going to happen in our time. It may not. It may not happen for a very long time concerning the time that you and I keep. But that does not mean we are excused from the table of living watchful and living ready because we just don't know, don't take for granted that you and I have an inside ticker in our mind of when Jesus is coming back. We are just told we've got signs that we can pay attention to, and those signs tell us that it's getting close, that it's getting close. And so he tells them, man, I just, I, I'm running out of time myself today. He tells them to keep watch. What does it look like to keep watching the last days? Real quick, look at this with me in Acts chapter 2. I think what it means to keep watching the last days looks a lot like how it started at the beginning of the last days in Acts 2. Peter preached his first message, 3,000 people gave their life to Jesus, and then look at verse 42 in chapter 2 of Acts. It says, all the believers, all 3,000 of them, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing the meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. What does it look like to be a people who keep watching the last days? I think it looks a lot like that right there. And Not, not, not anything has changed from that. There's not any further teaching in the New Testament that tells us we don't need to keep God's word, that we don't need to have God's people, and that we don't need God's presence. Those are three main distinct points that pop out of that text right there that says, what does it look like for a people and a church to keep watching the last days? To fill your life with God's word, to fill your life with God's people, and to fill your life with God's presence. What is the practical implication of that? Well, to fill your life with God's word means you've got to read the word. If you want more of the word in you, you got to start reading. Them. You got to start reading more of the word. Find a way. I've said it a thousand times, five hundred different ways. Find a way for you to get your face in the Word of God, so that the Word of God can get inside of you. The Word of God has so many, and it has, it's. It basically it's alive, and it's active. It's alive. And it's active. This has to be treated more than black and white and red lettering on a page. And it has to be looked at as this is God speaking to me. His word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against him. It's light. It's lamp. It's daily bread. It's milk. It's meat. It's all of the above. And then some. What does it mean to fill our life with God's people? There are so many what is called the one another commands in the New Testament. Love one another. Forgive one another one another. Be kind to one another. Bear the burden of one another. Comfort one another. Exhort one another. Pray for one another. Greet with, with one another. Eat with one another. Laugh with one another. All these one another's are throughout the New Testament. And let me propose to you that it would be impossible to follow through on the one another's if we were not really with one another. There is a deceptive lie that is in our world right now that is trying to convince Christians that you don't need the church in order to do God. tells you you can live alone, you can live isolated, you can go about your daily business and tell you can get up, eat, sleep, breathe, work, make a paycheck, live your life, do your thing, whatever it is, but you don't need the church. Let me tell you, that is absolutely false. And the Bible warns us that things like that would come in the last days to convince people, especially Christians, you can do faith without the, without the body of Christ. How in the world can you do Christ without His body? It's impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible. It is flipping impossible, if I can put an exclamation point on it with that. We are commanded, love one another, pray all these one another's. In fact, the Bible also goes on to describe the church as a picture as the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. And it says in Ephesians that he's coming back to, to, for a glorious church, a glorious bride without spot and without wrinkle. And in one of the images that John gets in, Matthew, in Revelation 19 is a picture of the bride sitting at this big massive table called the marriage supper of the Lamb. You don't eat at that table unless you join that table. You don't get to partake of that food unless you come and sit up at that table. Who's at that table? The bride of Christ. Those who are belonging to the Lord. Those who have remained faithful to Jesus. Friends, I can't imagine living eternity without seeing each and every single one of you and those who may be watching from a distance online and many, 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 more. John said, I saw a vast crowd that he could not even number. He could not even put a number to that's how many people were in this place he said that's how many people from all nationalities from all tribes from all tongues, people you and I never met before never thought of before don't even know how to say their name in English or any other language but they're going to be sitting at that same table and all we're going to be doing is be amazed at how many people God let in God called in God welcomed in just because they remain faithful to Jesus Remain faithful. Think about it. Live your life keeping watch with God's word in your heart, with God's people in your life, and God's presence. Rely on His presence. Rely on His presence. There's countless stories throughout the Old through the New Testament about the reliance and the dependency on the presence of God. The New Testament speaks of it as the Holy Spirit as well as through prayer. Prayer stimulates our thoughts and our minds to be more active, to engage God. When we pray, it engages God in our life. When we pray, it engages the Word of God in our life. When we pray, it engages the presence of God in our life. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 to pray in the Spirit at all times on every occasion. He tells us in Philippians 4 to not worry about anything, but to pray about everything. In Colossians 4, it tells us to have a heart that's devoted and alert to prayer. And in 1 Thessalonians five seventeen, he tells us, hey, pray without ceasing. I used to think, man, that, that's one of the shortest verses in the Bible, but how in the world are you going to pray without ceasing? Don't I have to sleep sometimes? Don't I have to eat sometimes? Don't I have some other things i got to do sometimes? Absolutely. Absolutely. What's he telling us? Have the mind and the heart to always have a conversation with the Lord because God has not called you to walk on this earth all by yourself. He walks with you and he talks with you and he knows you and he carries you and he helps you and he sustains you. All because you draw near to him. I'm not excited about this message at all. I gotta get to Philadelphia. The church of Philadelphia, Revelation 3, you can read about that as well. It's a picture, I think, of a church that lives ready. A people that lives ready. He opens it up and he tells them Jesus to John tells him, Look, I have the key of David in my hand, and I open a door no man can close. The key of David is the kingdom of God, which is salvation said, so I have the key in my hand to open salvation for you. Then I also have a door that I've opened that no man can close. That door is a door of opportunity, a door of purpose, a door to live your life devoted to Jesus. In everything you do, and everything you say, wherever you go, you're living for the Lord. You're investing your life into the mission of Christ. But then he goes on, just like he did with the church at Smyrna. He tells them in verse 9, I see your opposition. I see the pressure that waits for you on the other side of that door. Why is that? Because the devil doesn't want anybody to find out God created them for a purpose and with a purpose. Because when a person puts their faith in Christ and salvation, and then the eyes of their heart are open to the fact that Jesus created me for a mission, for a purpose, for a reason, I have a, I have a meaning to life, then the enemy gets scared. Because when a person finds their purpose to live for the Lord, the enemy freaks out. And he tries to do anything and everything he can to stop that from happening. Why do you think that anytime you and I ante up our faith and recommit and double down in our our faith to the Lord and our commitment to Christ, I'm going to serve you more, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, the enemy comes and tries to train wreck your life. Why? Because he knows if he can train wreck you then, he'll keep you train wrecked the whole time. And you'll never get on the tracks that lead to glory land for what your life was called to. And when you don't get on the tracks that lead there, he knows you will never be at a place to lead anybody else there. And he knows, man, if I can get them wrecked and train wrecked and, dis- and, 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 and busy over here and distracted over here, then I don't have to worry whatever they do with their life. I don't care if they make $10 million or not. Because they're never going to focus on what's right and what's important. Now, you can have $10 million and also focus on right and what's important because the church needs tithers off of $10 million too. Not so the preacher can drive a Bentley, but so the church can be faithful to the mission of Christ. Can I say it that way? I, don't, I wouldn't even know what to do with a Bentley if somebody gave me one. I'd be like, what? Somebody else would be like, I know what to do with a Bentley. You drive that thing. You show it off. But Jesus said, I see your pressure. I'm aware of it. I see you. But here's what he also goes on to tell them, the church at Philadelphia. He said, I'm coming soon. And what I need you to do is hold on to victory. Hold on to victory. Victory has already been given to you. In Romans 8, we're told we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. We are more than overcomers. We are more than conquerors. It's already been established. It's just you and I have to choose to live it out. To live it out. He says, I'm coming back. Hold on for victory. in, In other words, don't be like that one servant who took his bag of silver and buried it in the ground and did nothing with it because he was too scared. Because he was too whatever. No, be like the other two servants who took theirs and invested it for the mission and purpose of God. That when I come back, that I will find you at a place of ready... To well done, my good and faithful servant. What's it look like to live ready in the last days? Well, again, I go back to Acts 2. Look at it with me real quick. And I'm almost finished. You can go on. We can all go on and have our Mother's Day lunch. Do the things we do. What's it look like for a people in a church to be ready, to live ready in the last days? I think it looks a lot like this, Verse 43. It says, a deep sense of awe came over them. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. All the believers met together in one place, shared everything they had. They sold their property possessions, shared the money with others. They worshiped together each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper, shared meals with great joy and generosity. All the while, praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people, and the Lord added each day to the fellowship of those who were being saved. I think the... A church that lives ready and is living ready looks a lot like that right there. At the beginning of the last days, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. You see the distinctions. They were serving. They were giving. They were worshiping. They were living a life for the glory of God together. I say it this way. Make your life available to Jesus. Make your life available to Jesus. Paul to the church at Colossae said this. He said it this way, whatever you do and say, do it as a representative as unto the Lord. Whatever you do or say, live your life as a representative of the Lord. Make yourself available to Jesus. It's not about ability or our inability many times. Often it lingers and hinges on our availability. How available are you to the Lord? Or do you live your life right now thinking, well, one day I will make myself available to the Lord? But right now I'm kind of busy. Right now I kind of got some stuff going on. I'm trying to sort through some things. I, I, you know, whatever. I get it. I get it. But just know your life will never truly fall into place and have meaning. Have the richness of purpose with a clarity that only God can bring unless you put Jesus in the center. Unless you put him in the center. Make your life available to Jesus. I like to say it this way too. Make your life useful to Jesus. That doesn't mean he's going to make you do what I do. I can tell you right now, don't do it. Don't do it unless you know this is what you're called to but I do know this every one of us are called to something great because we serve a great God we serve a great God in the beginning in the garden he created man and woman in his image in his likeness then you see a picture of them walking together working together worshipping together that's a picture of whatever our life is supposed to be about walking with working with God, worshiping the Lord together. Make yourself useful to Jesus. Paul told Timothy, hey, Timothy, in these last days, man, make sure you do this. Make sure you keep your life a vessel of honor. Continue to make your life to be a vessel of honor so that you can be useful to the master at any good time. Friends, God wants to use your life. God wants to flow through your life. God wants to put things into your life but he puts things into your life only to sow so that he can see them flow out of your life. Not empty handed, because if we live like this, it's coming in and it's flowing out. Freely you have received, freely give, and he uses us in so many different ways, on different levels. One, he gave five bags of silver, another two, another one, each according to their ability. We're all gifted created uniquely by the hand of God and God has a unique purpose for which he wants to use you for not one of you are are an accident not one of you are meant to live life lost confused hurt constantly wounded dejected, rejected depressed, oppressed Not one of you are meant to live life that way. Jesus came, hung on the cross, absorbed the pain of sin, every one of it, every ounce of sin, everything and anything that separates you from him. He took it on. He paid the ransom. He is the ransom. He redeemed our life. He restores our life. And he keeps our life. He has a way. (laughs) Only him. Only him. He has a way, man, of pulling pain out, replacing it with pleasure. Pulling out the darkness, replacing it with light. Pulling out the hurt, replacing it with joy. Only he has a way to do that. And friends, it it happens when you make yourself available and useful. And thirdly, I'll say it this way, make your life count. Make your life count. Make your life count to Jesus. Don't waste your life chasing after things that you know God did not send you. Don't chase it. The temptations are great, but God is greater. Don't do that. Make your life count for Jesus. Peter, in Acts 2, I mean just 50 days earlier, denied the Lord himself three times. Anybody ever, you don't have to raise raise your hand, but you ever felt real guilty about something? You ever felt real condemned about something? Peter was that way. And here he was. God poured out his spirit. People not sure what to think of it. And he was like, wait a minute. There's something about what was said about this there's this scroll i read once the prophet joel 800 years earlier i remember reading that this is what he's talking about maybe somebody should say something how about you luke maybe you How about you john james you guys are crazy y'all y'all step on out there and say something to the people nobody would get up Acts 2.14 says, Peter stepped forward and with a loud voice began to preach his first sermon. And guess what happened? Because Peter stepped forward, came out of his past, came out of that depression, came out of that oppressiveness of feeling sorry for himself, feeling like life had wronged him and he had let God down. He preached and 3,000 people gave their heart to the Lord. That just gives me hope. That gives me hope. That should give you hope. We make our life available. Make our life useful. Make our life count. For the Lord. Will you stand to your feet?